This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm talking with David Kunzel, author of the book Rebirth of the English Comic Strip, A Kaleidoscope, 1847 to 1870. David, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you. Yes, I'm, I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to give a little publicity to this book, which has not yet been reviewed. <laughs> well, we're happy to have you on our show, and hopefully we can uh, attract some reviewers as well as some readers. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Well, I'm uh, <clears throat> many years now retired from being a professor of art history at UCLA, um, which I, where I've been a long, long time. Um, came to the United States out of England, actually, had a rather nice job at the National Gallery in London <laughs> as official lecturer, the only one they had. And I was the boss, so to speak, lecturing in situ on, on the pictures. I'll never forget that experience, which I regret <laughs> <laughs> having lost when I came here, where I was able to take students occasionally to museums, which was a special treat, but not, of course, on a regular basis. Uh, we had to... Um, stay in, in the galleries there. But anyway, here I, that, that I left in 1964, and I've been here in California since. Hmm. And I've written about, tw- I don't know, about 12, 13 books. I, I was wondering if you Half of which would be on comic strips, but the, the other half not. I, I was wondering if you could explain how this book fits with your other works. I, I, exactly. Uh, what have your other works been about that are that relate to uh, the book that we'll be dis- that we'll be discussing here? Yes, uh, good question. I have been all my life concerned with the intersection of art and history. And when I arrived at this country, the Vietnam War was flaring up, and I realized that it sharpened my sense that popular culture does a lot, uh, engages itself in war, for and against. Um, And that uh, I, how shall I say, the, the first book I was working on, which is my dissertation, which became a very big book published by the University of California Press, um, which really covered um, great territory from the middle of, from the invention of printing, essentially, in the middle of the 15th century, down to 1826, as a kind of special date, is down to Tupfer. And I was uh, prompted to write about the comic strip, I think by a, a um, 
the man who turned out to be my supervisor in, and, and became a friend, uh, Ernst Gombrich, who in the preface to his Art and Illusion, which came out in 1962, was it, um, says that somebody should trace the history of the comic strip or picture story. I think he called it picture story, which was a perhaps a more polite, more dignified term than comic strip, especially since a lot of the strips which I've always dealt with are not at all comic. Anyway, picture story is a good alternative title, and it's held for a, for a long time. And I decided that what Combridge said should be done, which was to trace the history from Hogarth to Tupfer, was worth doing. And so I did that. And I discovered that there was so much before Tupfer, since the invention of printing, since the first comic strip, which shows up really in the uh, with the invention of printing, virtually, that uh, the first volume didn't get to Tupfer at all. No, the second, the further subsequent volumes did, and I've done three on Tupfer. And and meanwhile, I'm not going to try and list. Meanwhile, I've done some books which were really very much connected with the war, with the wars that the U.S. has been consistently engaged in, aggressive imperialist wars, which were I found quite horrifying and detestable, starting with the Vietnam War. And uh, then later with many others and coinciding with an, uh, a long interest I'd had in Dutch art, which I taught a great deal, and where I found a niche, a gap in otherwise a very prolific uh, Dutch art history industry, you know, an enormous amount of attention paid to the 17th century, to the golden age of the Dutch. But they hadn't dealt with the war as represented by the Dutch. And I wrote a book which absorbed me a lot, and I'm very, very proud of, and, it was, uh, and brought out by the Dutch themselves in a very fine edition called um, From Criminal to Courtier, The Soldier in Netherlandish Art. I use the word Netherlandish because that's more than Dutch, right? In Netherlandish Art, 1550 to 1672. There again is a case of, I seem to like to choose precise dates, and there is a reason for them as there is there, as there are for the current one, which we now ready to talk about. It, it's, it's a fascinating book, and it's one that I, I thought was really interesting because I, I knew very little about the subject. And you not only talk about this period of uh, publishing in England as it relates to the visual art, but you also connect it to, uh, you show how it came about after an early period. You, as you make it clear from the beginning, this isn't the first time that visuals are represented in print, but you do distinguish this period from what you term the great age of caricature. I was wondering if you could perhaps start us off by talking about the, those antecedents. I mean, what uh, was the great age of caricature and, and why was there a hiatus between that period and this period where you have the development of what comes to be termed the comic strip? Yes, well, that, <laughs> indeed, uh, um, the comic strip never dies. Um, I mean, well, it's, I think it reaches, a, you can say, its first great ca capital G, climax, capital C, with Hogarth, who is a pictorial narrator per excellence, who had an immense effect 
because they're not just in England, but they're majorly in England, but also in Europe, where you had imitators, in, particularly in Germany. Um, and he had disciples, who were not, if, not as good as he was, uh, but along comes an era in English history, which is quite, uh, is very, um, kind of very, say spectacular. It becomes very restive, I mean, it is the age, essentially, of the American Revolution, right? Um, in the second half of the 18th century. And that's when the Great Age starts. Actually, the Great Age of caricature is generally dated from the 1820s, <coughs> from the 1780s, when Gilray and Rowlandson burst on the scene, the major artists. Um, and continues uh, very active, although diminishingly, up to about 1820, when the appetite for what was the primary vehicle of satire, including a lot of comic strips, uh, satires and political lives very much, um, it, um, it peters out in the 1820s a sense that a new format is required. And gradually, in the first sort of avatar of the comic strip in the journal, which will, is what I'm concerned with later, does start in the 1820s, when the English were the first to try to put pictures into daily or weekly uh, supplements, uh, in, into newspapers. And newspapers gradually filled with comic cuts, as they were called, and they were comic usually stolen from existing albums. And the new um, format after the English Great Age of caricature broadsheet was the album. And the master of the album was, which, the, the album, you know, was a sort of a con, conjuries of. of uh, funny stuff all over the place, um, all over the society, really. A little bit, I would say a little bit, quite a bit political, but also a lot of social, and perhaps the social coming to the fore as the politics in England tended to go a little softer after the Napoleonic Wars. Um, and uh, here is the master of caricature, the word has embedded in himself now in common parlance, and usually in a negative sense, as it remains today, you know, to do uh, a caricature of somebody is to make him look ridiculous or, or in some way unfairly distorted, you know, that sort of thing. Anyway, here is Crookshank, who was the master of caricature in the Great Age, uh, uh, carrying very... Um, Prolifically, the uh, the, van, the mantle of um, Gilray, whose work table he inherited. By the way, it's a nice little detail. <laughs> Gilray went mad. I think it was in 1810, and uh, here is Cruikshank, a 19-year-old, with his father, who was already a caricaturist, really quite well established and respected. But anyway, along comes George, who just goes all over the place. And uh, he is uh, indefatigable and remains so um, partly in the broadsheet, which lingered on a bit, you know, certainly into the 
20s. But he is at that point beginning to shift into um, not the journal caricature, which was still sort of exceptional and had its place a little bit, or, well, I should say, uh, a conspicuous bit, but a limited conspicuous bit, shall we say, um, in the new journal, the new newspapers, uh, particularly the sporting pictures, you know, which didn't feel they need to stick to news. They could just talk about sporting events, you know, like pugilism and racehorsing and that sort of thing. Anyway, those become quite popular and creating an audience that was more literate than it had been before and broader. And Cruikshanks really works into that very fast and produces a number of albums, which are often called uh, uh, comic cuts um, and uh, were a sort of scattering of squibs on social foibles and peculiarities without too much direction. And they were sometimes published as a typical title. Um, Scraps and Sketches was a typical title used for Cruikshank's albums in the 30s and 40s. So those were albums which was something different from what happens in my era by 1847, which is the entry into the... Um, into dedicated comic or satirical magazines. And I say, use this word for both, of comic perhaps for the art and satirical for the literary content, which was often quite serious and was very carefully honed to try and improve conditions in England that were felt to be rather awful in the 18, by the 1840s. You know, social conscience of the Britons had wakened a bit. Um, conditions in factories, which was an industrialization, which was a horror for many people. Anyway, um, well, I was thinking about, far enough with that, talk, with that well, does that question take me far enough it, it, to 1847? It does, it does but I, I, do, I do want to mention that, uh, that I was, as, as I was listening to you, I was thinking about uh, some of the works that are in your book. And, and, and I should make clear, your, your book is a very visual book. And, it, and it's unfortunate that's something that we can only uh, discuss in, in uh, the podcast without uh, providing any sort of visual examples, but you you provide uh, you a generous selection of samples. And I was thinking about how those themes stand out in, in the selections of Cruikshank's art that you feature. I was thinking about uh, Tom and Jerry, which is you know a fairly light uh, work, but then you have the bottle, which is a very uh, serious commentary. As you mentioned, it was it was a very uh, yes. widespread one. But as you mentioned, it was it was very. It was uh, a, a social commentary. It wasn't really a political commentary. You don't have them calling out the the, the prime minister of the day or the government of the day and saying that. No, indeed. It, it's it's more about saying it's more about the social condemnation of the effects of of, of alcoholism uh, on yes. families. Uh, the caricature has become uh, when I say so. It remained a little political, and there were political satirists, uh, um, but it perhaps it's. Um, where it really went to bed and woke up from bed, <laughs> uh, went into dream world as well, was in the social world. Yes. Um, and you mentioned, I mean, the two, you mentioned the Cruikshank um, bottle, and then there's, and Drunk as Children comes after that, and then the, the toothache which is another sort of satire in its way. 
and, and another format. But meanwhile, this is the point that has to be made, and you should stop me <laughs> lest I run on too long on this. The Tupfer, on whom I've written a great deal and thought a great deal and amassed it by accident, by bequeathing from a dear old lady in New York, a huge collection of original Tupfer picture stories. And I, 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 I thought of starting out this interview by just recounting an anecdote, a personal anecdote, which is to say that I've been wandering out. I'm now um, in recovery from an operation, right? And um, I've been in the habit of sort of wandering slowly around the streets of where we live. And people will politely ask me, you know, oh, hello, what are you doing now? Um, and uh, how uh, how are you? What is it, the object of your research? And at that point, actually, I'd come back to Tupfer after having gone else a little bit into his descendants. So I said, "Oh, I'm studying still, uh, thinking this is you know the biggest name I had on my book, so to speak." Was oh, I'm studying Rodolf Tupfer, and they would look at me blankly. Who? Tupfer. And I would say, you haven't heard of him? No. And that really set me thinking um, that anyone in Switzerland would have heard of him. A lot of uh, most educated people in France, and I'm tempted to say most educated people in Germany, would have heard of him. And in Switzerland, they would have known him very well because he was a Swiss. And he appeared on a postage stamp. What more could you want? <laughs> I should say not for himself, not his portrait, but the characters he created. And his genius was to create extraordinarily funny, bizarre and crazy, crazy characters. And he shows up in the 1830s. So he is really the bridge between the great age of caricature and the age which I'm dealing with in this book which starts in 1847 via a Cruikshank imitation of Tupfer, which failed, we are told. He didn't sell many copies, and he, was, he realized that you know, Tupfer's not easy to imitate, especially when you have an established style and mode of, of narration that I have. He really wanted to tell short stories or even novels and pictures, and, you know, Dickens got there first, right? He couldn't do it. Um, he tried and tried even notoriously to take credit for Oliver Twist, <laughs> which was a very unfortunate episode in his life, Cruikshank's life, because he made himself ridiculous. But anyway, he wanted to be a novelist, we could say, at a certain point. And this failed Mr. Lambkin, he was called, the Life and Adventures. It's a courtship, very conventional and rather poorly drawn. It's, you know, it's Cruikshank trying to make a buck or trying to get in on the game again but with a narrative album in the manner of Tupfer, except it wasn't anything like Tupfer's style that nobody could imitate, or well, least of all Cruikshank <laughs> could imitate. He was imitated a lot. Well, that's a long story. He, let me put it this way. Tupfer was widely imitated for his line and his thinking, his improvisation, his saying, look, hey, you don't have to be an artist to produce funny stories. You just draw a silly face and see what that face 
says to you. And he says this in one of his many theoretical treatises. He was a great, Tupfer was a tremendous um, theorist of his art. And of art, all kinds of art, actually, because he was an art critic in a big way in Geneva. But he says in one of his books on uh, how to do caricature, essentially, you know, just draw a face and uh, find out what that face might do. You know, is this the man who would have, get hell from his wife all the time? Is this a man who would, have, who would be a hen-pecked husband? Or is this a man who, did I say, and or is this a man who would turn to all kinds of crazy professions which he was ill-suited for or become a sort of a ne'er-do-well? Or, you know, you could see an adventure. You can imagine an adventure coming out of a funny face like this. And, okay. and yet, as you describe in the book... I thought off your question went elsewhere. Oh, uh, it's totally fine, though, because I mean, it, it definitely uh, helps to inform parts of your book. I, I was thinking, though, about it, it, when you start talking... Uh, because well, you do discuss that uh, you know sort that sort of uh, you know artwork in uh, the various chapters of your book. You do though also talk about how these artists of the period uh, are definitely engaging with current affairs, although not in the way that say a modern day uh, political cartoonist will. Uh, they, they're, they, one of the things that, that struck me as I was reading it was the recurrent theme of francophobia. About how you see uh, in in Punch, uh, in uh, in the uh, flight of Louis Philippe, uh, that there's this uh, there's this re recurrent. It's as if when they're commenting on politics, they're they're playing it safe, but they're at the same time uh, doing uh, some oftentimes uh, wicked visual uh, commentary satire on uh, some of the the key events of the day, but in in a way that yeah. won't necessarily bring upon them the ire of, of of whoever happens to be in power at the moment. Well, it did. <laughs> it did in, at, at certain moments, which can be traced, and uh, you have to sort of wiggle them out. And uh, I discovered only, you know, uh, looking very carefully at the drawings of the flight of Louis Philippe, for instance, and what um, what kind of reputation he had in Britain, where he was exiled to. Uh, I'm sorry, not Louis Philippe. Louis Philippe was, uh, yeah, well, Louis Philippe was exiled to, to, to England. It was a great place to be exiled to. <laughs> and um, more worrying to the English was the advent of uh, Louis Napoleon, who seized the throne and became emperor of the French. And although he didn't actually make war on the British, he made war on the Prussians, which was a great error on his part. <laughs> Not that making war on the British would have got him anywhere at all, except it was a different kind of disaster. It was a certain kind of, because there was a, a rivalry, a colonial, mainly a colonial rivalry going on. You know, the French grabbed Algeria and Britain grabbed big chunks of Africa and the West Indies and that sort of thing. So that rivalry was going on, and that shows up in the comic strips. And in fact, the flight of Louis Philippe, um, which you mentioned by Richard Doyle, is um, at one point breaks its stride of the adventures, the fantastic adventures which are in themselves. I think derive in some measure in their fantasy and their absurdity and in their sort of travel uh, obsession. This travel, this is obsession with travel at this time. 
um, that Louis Philippe was a good target and uh, that he um, should, as he is exiled from France in the uh, June days of 1848 and comes to England, he's a good topic for satire. And he shows up in the very first comic strip I deal with, discounting Cruikshank, who is more picture story than comic strip. He shows that he's suddenly interpolated, not as a portrait of him, but as a portrait he is satirized as. That is to say, a pair in poire. He was known as the poire because he had a poire, a pear-shaped head. <laughs> and he was much ridiculed for this by Daumier and company. But he was finally thrown out and found himself then in the middle of a revolution, which is what this comic strip is indirectly dealing with at that point. And the revolution, which uh, is, is the story of um, the adventures of, of a Mr. Crindle who's trying to escape a, what is, who is this escaping a, a poverty or a wife or something like that? They're always escaping something. Anyway, and he gets to the court, the, um, to the uh, east coast. I think it must be the east coast of Africa. It's called Kwashi Bungo. And there he finds himself elected king and marrying the queen, the native queen. And this is obviously a play on what is happening in France. Uh, as if some, by some fantasy, the English were watching eagerly at the shenanigans in France and probably saying to themselves, oh, thank good we've got a you know, good parliamentary system. We don't have to change monarchs. And we're not at the risk of getting another monarch, which is exactly what happened in France. And so this Crindle, uh, uh, after occupying the this new English colony, as it were, never stated as such, but just and with mixing with the natives and, in fact, nearly getting killed by them, Nearly getting eaten by them, and finally deciding it's time to make his escape and coming back home, and and uh, then uh, what happens? He, I think he gets married. <laughs> Many of these stories, after most horrendous and extraordinary and absurd adventures, they settle down to a very conventional bourgeois life on, uh, on the, uh, at the wedding, um, at the, in, in a marriage. <laughs> that, that was another. So does that get us to war to where we're? You want to go? <laughs> it, 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 well, it does, but it, it also actually brings up another point that, that I was thinking about as I was reading your book, which is there's something that you see in it that, that's really fascinating, which another kind of theme of the era is the emergence of the bourgeois. And I, I was thinking of it in terms of uh, such uh, you know, cartoons as uh, the, the Browns visit the Great Exposition. Uh, you, you could argue perhaps a little bit, a little bit of, uh, you know, uh, Tom and Jerry is it, this idea that that it, it, which I, I thought was interesting because it, it speaks to how the the audience of 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 who these cartoons are that they're you know, they're speaking to a particular group of people who might you know find these things amusing the notion that of of going and visiting these places the notion of of going on tours and and how it, it spoke to how the the times are changing I'm, my my. Uh, command of Hogarth isn't that great, but I was thinking that you, you, it's it's very it's it's rather different in terms of, of that uh, topic or subject than what you saw say during the eighteen uh, the seventeen fifties the seventeen sixties and so forth. Well, 
Uh, you said earlier, you, I mean, uh, you mentioned the middle class. Yes. The great growth in the middle class in Britain, a very a precocious growth, you could say, of the middle class. And it's just the middle class which is, I'm tempted to say the upper middle class, make that distinction, which was the patron of Hogarth. Mm-hmm. I mean, his engravings were not cheap, um, but uh, they certainly appealed to a, which can be called not aristocratic mentality, which otherwise seemed to govern art patronage. Um, and at a very expensive level, because, you know, buying like crazy from <laughs> Italy, particularly. But um, there was a middle class already growing then for Hogarth, and Hogarth was then adapted to the middle class in a, in, uh, in a very curious way, it's because <laughs> Hogarth is at certain points very, very sexual. And this is what turned me on as a child. I know <laughs> when I discovered Hogarth at the age of seven, without quite knowing what sex was, I knew that this was raunchy stuff. And there was evil and drink and sex and violence, you know, to satisfy me at that age. Uh, at Rather conscious of knowing that my family background, which was a very sedate, never dealt with these topics at all. <laughs> um, that was a sort of taboo. Uh, but I discovered a v- volume of Hogarth, which in the library left to me, including a complete set of punch, 1841 to 1891, left to me by my uncle, to whom I dedicate my book. I don't know if you've noticed, there is a rather good-looking young man who was not more than 20 when he died. And I dedicate the book to him because he set me going on Hogarth and then on Punch. And there is so much Punch in, and you mentioned the Punch attitude to uh, the uh, world affairs at the time and their lack of uh, their, uh, well, I was going to say fear of France. Yeah, it was a real fear of France as well as a sense of superiority to France. Having beaten Bonaparte at Waterloo, right? Don't forget <laughs> that. Uh, the French had been sort of um, sidelined a bit in foreign affairs. And the English were rather nervous that another Napoleon would come along, as he did, Napoleon III, you know, 30 years, what, Waterloo is 1815, and here's Napoleon III, Emperor of France, by 1851, 1852. So that's a, a span of time in which the English were sort of, were um, sort of feeling, you could say, since you mentioned the Great Expe- Exhibition, feeling their superiority and their peace and their privilege of peace. And there are several pictures in my book showing how peaceful John Bull the embodiment of Britain, saw itself and how lucky they were not to be caught up in the violence which was uh, destroying much of Europe, and destroying in a radical sense, but it's certainly causing immense disturbances and overthrowing thrones, overthrowing societies all over Europe. 
1848-1849. And that is what this particular comic strip is referring to, and I think Mr. Crindle getting himself among the natives of Africa. This is perhaps the English projection. You know, they're not too worried about making their impact on Europe anymore. They're there to stay, and they are the boss in some ways. The the sort of diplomatic uh, weight that they carry greater than, you know, small island, greater than the bigger France, shall we say, at this point. And they, um... This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I've wandered off your point. <laughs> That's so <laughs> uh, to, 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 to bring it Which back happens. To, what I was thinking was, was, was how... Well, anyway, the, the, the point... Uh, I'm sorry, sorry yeah. What, uh, what I want to come back to is okay. you mentioned the term Franco... Did you say Francophilia or Francophobia? Francophobia. Because it's both. Uh, the, the, towards the French. Well, I, I was thinking when we were talking about politics, I was thinking about, about the Francophobia, which, which stands out. But there is there there there, does, there is sometimes a certain affection, but you, which you also see, I think, when we were talking about the foreign tours, which 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 are another subject that that recurs in in uh, some of the, the the cartoons that you that you focus on. Yes. Well, the interesting thing about the um, Francophilia was very real because. Uh, I said that perhaps a little rashly. I'm not sure that England. Well, no, they felt themselves superior economically. Put it that way, uh, superior as people. You know, who knew how to run a country, knew how to establish a parliament which represented popular interests, which they did partially, not all of them, of course. So a great deal of agitation going on to improve the conditions in which Parliament was established. But anyway, here they are with a sense of certainly economic superiority, which you could say is justified. But they felt, par contre, I drop into French, par contre, (laughs) uh, was not true on the cultural level. France was still the... A chivalrous, is that the word I'm looking for now? It was the, it was the standard of artistic production. In, uh, French art was greater than any in the world. Well, not, not looking at Asia, but certainly in Europe. Um, and um, the French uh, the theater, which is very close to the comic strip, in a way that if I had to had more room for, to write in this book, which got too big. <laughs> anyway, I would have dealt more with the overlap between comic strip and theatre, which is very marked with here I am at a tangent again. Bring me back, please. Anyway, the comic strip artists, uh, if uh, Crookshank is one, he's, uh, he's more of a graphic novelist, I think. Um, we're very close to the theatre and Crookshank's uh, the bottle was uh, produced on eight stages simultaneously in England, you know. Meanwhile, I mean, that, that is a truly native English production. Otherwise, the English theatre was very much dependent on French. You know, they copied the French. 
I think um, there's a moment in Crumble, which I'm t I shouldn't test myself on this. Anyway, there's an early... Um, Dickens' novel, where um, the hero is it Nicholas Nickleby goes uh, goes off, uh, finds himself employed by a, a um, theatrical company, and he's uh, very quick to learn, and he's very funny, and he's a stage presence already, although he hasn't made his name in the world, um, and he's told by Mr. Crumbles. Now, this is the name of the director of this theatre. Okay, we want a new play for next week. Next week? What do you mean? Well, all right. I mean, give me the script, and I try and learn a bit of it, parts of it that I need that I will impersonate by heart in you know over the weekend or something. So, oh, there's no English script. We've got we've only got the French version, and you know <laughs> French, don't you? He said, well, y yes. Okay, so just work work the French into English, and we've got our play. And this is what the English were doing, not quite in a sort of crudely as that, because they, they, they took good French plays and they put it into, I suppose, good English. It's a kind of theatre nobody looks at today, so there's no way to really to judge it, although there is scholarly literature galore, I'm sure, as there is on everything else in the 19th century. Uh, but the English theatre land was um, uh, immensely popular, and the popularity of the theatre at various levels, you know, from musical up to opera, um, marked the comic strips up, up to a point. I don't see a very immediate overlap, uh, but it is there insofar as you look at the life of Watts Phillips. Watts Phillips does a number of really good comic strips, and he was also, he wrote plays. And I've mentioned that Cruikshank was turned into the theatre a great deal for his most successful efforts, after which he stopped, that is to say, the, uh, um, the drunkard, the, um, the bottle. And this is, uh, coming back, which is, I think one can always <laughs> do profitably, the idea of a middle class. There is a new class growing up which will take on the comic strip in a way that, shall we say, the uh, elite, the cultural elite, couldn't do. There's no evidence of anyone saying, oh, yes, Dickens is great, yeah, but you, sh you should look at all those comic strips that, um, you know, Dickie Doyle is doing in Punch, you know, about Louis Philippe. Aren't they great? No, nobody, <laughs> looks, nobody looked at that as serious comment. Although we do, and I try to, in my, as I describe the um, liberties that the artist takes with the facts and the degree to which he respects the facts, which in the case of Louis Napoleon, uh, the Emperor Napoleon, are extraordinary. <laughs> uh, he, I mean, he was an adventurer in the first degree. And he, you know, he staged two attempted coups against the attempted revolutions against the existing French government. He was exiled twice to England. He was all over Europe. He was a, he was a European figure even before he became uh, the president of France and then the emperor of France. And he, this is an interesting point to make, this, the story of Louis Philippe, or Louis Le Petit, as he's called, uh, Louis the Little, as a sort of uh, reference to um, uh, the way he was known 
to the French as Louis le Grand, Louis the, Louis the Great. <laughs> what did I say, Louis? I mean, he wasn't a Louis. I'm sorry, Napoleon the Great. So Napoleon le Petit shows up um, in two ways in um, uh, England in Punch um, with uh, sort of straight out cartoons which show a fear of his rearmament, which he was doing. He was trying to rearm, make France a military power again. And uh, his nothing ostensibly uh, hostile to Britain, except that you know, Britain didn't like any country making colonies where they weren't, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, here he was taking over Algeria in double quick time, and the English didn't like that, and they represented that takeover of Algeria indirectly as the invasion of Normandy by William the Conqueror, showing up as a parodic comic strip, which I spent a whole chapter on, and it was a fascinating topic, the Bayeux Tapestry, which is actually an embroidery, not a tapestry. But anyway, the Bayeux Tapestry is one of the great works of art, right, that everyone... Well, you don't have to go to Bayeux to see it because there's a perfect replica in Reading in England. Um, And it is reproduced in... I do not exaggerate, a hundred (laughs) books and analyzed uh, for its take on this momentous event in English history. The only time the English have ever been the British, well, it's really the English, have been invaded and taken over um, was in 1066. And this invasion is represented in the bio-tapestry in a way that the scholars have been chewing over you know, for <laughs> decades. Uh, I think you could say since um, the first books began to appear, I think, at the beginning of the, 19, uh, beginning of the 20th century. Well, perhaps even since the facsimile was first made in Britain. It's interesting that the British made a facsimile of this great work of art, which is not easy to copy <laughs> um, in uh, the 1820s. And it is on that basis, I think, that Dickie Doyle, the first of the great artists, maybe you will ask me about the other great artists, I think he is a great artist, um, represents uh, in his um, Barrier Tapestry. <laughs> and I, I put in the chapter heading the, the title uh, used by Punch itself, because Bayeux refers not only to the Bayeux tapestry, or the letters of Bayeux being in that word, but inserted in the middle is Sir Charles Barry, who was rebuilding the Houses of Parliament, a big event, obviously, after the fire of the 1830s, and it had to be rebuilt. And that was a chance for the English to show their paces as painters. And the curious thing when I was saying earlier, you know, inferiority that the English felt, or perhaps was, put it more politely, were trying to overcome vis-a-vis the French. You know, and they produced Constable and Turner, didn't they? <laughs> but was any Frenchman? No? Um, anyway, uh, the Houses of Parliament were to be the venue for an English, a new English school of history painting. And the requirement of any artist to put in a cartoon, 
ask me more about that word later if you want, uh, to put in a, a drawing, a full-size drawing of his design for the Westminster Hall um, murals. Uh, they would... Um, they had to take a topic from English history, and that's kind of logical logic there. And here is uh, Dickie Doyle doing his bit uh, to suggest a, a comic version of the um, uh, of the Norman invasion, uh, as it were, to go on the wall. He says, so "This is, you know, this is my this is my offering." It's <laughs> uh, entirely different uh, at a level of. Um, uh, stylistic level, which actually, and this is an interesting thing, wow. are more to Tupfer than they do either to the 12th, the, the 11th century artists, women artists, incidentally, who made the Bayeux tapestry. It was more to Tupfer than to this bizarre, you know, this by the totally outmoded. Um, but just in its way, very English, cherished style of um, a crude style. And it's a very crudity that uh, Doyle parlays into something more tipperish. Uh, and that is the subject of a whole chapter, which I had <laughs> trouble cutting back. I remember I'd go through it again and again and again, saying, this is too long, too long, cut it back. Oh dear, that's my life. I actually want to pick up on a couple of themes that you've discussed because uh, it, it's uh, we, uh, you know given, given how much is in the book and, and how much time we have remaining, I, I, I want to be a bit more condensory. You mentioned earlier about how uh, Hogarth uh, was you, uh, you know aiming towards a particular audience and, and how he, how his uh, engravings were very expensive. You're talking though in this book about a period where you're starting to see the expansion of a of a more of, of a literary market. And the, the the journals you mentioned, you, you the punch being the most obvious one, but you also have Man in the Moon, Illustrated London News, and and these are the ones that are they're, they're geared more towards a, a much broader uh, uh, spectrum of, of of English society. And I was thinking about how while you don't talk about that uh, in the book, you do illustrate it with the illustrations, which. Because we've been talking a lot about the the, the politics, the, the francophobia, the francophilia, but you, but a lot of them, a, a lot of the arts that you have in here, it, it's it's very, it, it's it's commenting on social foibles, commenting upon people. It, it's 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 you know sometimes it's satirizing the middle class, sometimes it's satirizing the upper class in ways that the middle class would find particularly funny. It, it, it strikes me about how you you don't have in a lot of these uh, analyzed drawings depictions of. Lords and 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 monarchs. You haven't said that's uh, you know that's fascinating. I think I should have developed that more. The sh yes, the heroes are middle class heroes. Yes, like, like, they like, would be middle middle class, shall we say? Uh, that's a comfortable or an upper middle class, a, a moneyed middle class. Once you can uh, travel, for example, middle class. That is what how Mr. Crindle starts in, in the Man in the Moon, and that many of the strips start. Several of them uh, start with a, a sudden inheritance, you know, from an aunt or an uncle from in Australia <laughs> or something, who sent, who makes uh, a poor nephew, a poor relative, his heir, and he, what does he do with that? Guess, you know, he squanders it <laughs> on frivolities. So this is uh, a comment on what happens when uh, lower middle class, should we say, starts out in lower middle class, suddenly becomes an upper middle class with aristocratic ambitions. 
you know, and have mistresses, you know, and horses and that sort of thing. And that is frowned on. That has to be punished. There's a lot of mocking there. I, I know even with hunting. horses. I mean, they're not supposed to be owning horses. The, mm-hmm. level, the middle middle classes, should we say, don't own ho- even own a horse, which, well, you do in the countryside, but you don't, you don't if you're a clerk in the city. And uh, he goes to the horse show with his friends, and Smith, Giles um, and, and, and Robinson, and they go to the horse show on horseback and immediately get thrown and sort of almost crushed underfoot by galloping uh, cavalcade of, 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 of cavalry, which shows up as part of the display, the rest of the thing. So they get humiliated. And the humiliation of ambition is of this kind is very typical and I some it's a thread which uh, I get unhappy now talking to you Mark is a thread I should have drawn out there should have been a chapter you know ca- called just that the punishment of ambition and that would I think you were headed towards that idea and I I don't deal with that sufficiently I don't bring it together sufficiently well, you, you, it, it does. All. It does come across. Uh, I, I thought well with, with the selection. It, 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 you don't have to draw it out because it's there. You, you have, uh, and you have with the, the notion of. Uh, and I was thinking of of, of Keane when he when he's like the perilous journey by water, where he has Mrs. Trot and how she is doing this thing that a century ago would have been only the purview of the of the uh, upper classes. You know. Uh, journeying to 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 on, on a tour of the continent, and, and you have you know all the middle class. Uh, you know, she is as a, trying to remain this proper member of the middle class and all the adventures that she goes on. Or you have uh, Mr. Wilderspin uh, by, by Mr. Wilderspin. Yes. Hello. Yes. I haven't lost you, have I? No, you you haven't. Oh, no. Uh, uh, anyway, gap the gap here. I just feel it. Yes. Look, um, the. Um... The punishment of the of middle class ambition is not it's it assumes that certain kinds of ambition are okay, like a bit of touring on the continent you you mentioned it wasn't just the aristocracy who perhaps were the primary visitors abroad in the 18th century, uh, but the English were going abroad. Cook's tours were organized by the 40s and 50s, and I mean, on a cut-price basis. Um, and they were getting to France, easy to, to get to on the cross-channel steamer, uh, and relatively cheap. It was made, you know, you've got group fares. Uh, the kind of thing we're familiar with today, and you get guided tours even. Uh, either you, you, you could hire your own guide relatively cheaply, a local guide perhaps who could speak your language, since the English could speak no other language but English. Uh, <laughs> but uh, you um, certainly uh, had as a, shall we say, an upper middle class person or a perhaps middle middle class uh, person who is willing to you know throw a bit of money at a at a long summer holiday uh, by walking abroad and um, deciding that it was a very healthy exercise to, to begin with, as well as culturally informative, you know, because they might get as far as Italy, which is what they do. Uh, and which Tupfer does, by the way, but of course Tupfer starts out much nearer to Italy because he's out of Geneva. Anyway, 
Um, there is that uh, aspect of travel which runs through many of the stories which are tra- I, I'd, I'd like to just put it this way that travels geographically and travels of the imagination which is what happens with the very first comic strips in Man of the Moon which I make a great fuss over Man in the Moon because it's and I say at the end well, what a shame I'm weeping at the fate of Man in the Moon which is to close down after two years you know so why isn't the public buying this magazine well we're told actually uh, that the way that the comic strip was inserted into the magazine, made for awkward reading. It had to be folded twice in, and was presumably a sort of expensive gluing job or something. It was, that was part of it. But it is a phenomenon that continues right through the century, that the cheap magazines that run half of my comic strips die within two years. I don't... That is... To say the comic strip doesn't die, well, in some cases the comic strip obviously is intended to continue, but is killed by the death of the magazine. And you have to ask the question, why is it that a tuppenny magazine uh, costing less than a threepenny punch is dying all the time, whereas a threepenny punch is not? The answer to that is... One of the answers to that is that the threepenny punch was appealing to people for whom threepence was nothing. And so it had an upper-class audience. We know this that the politicians bought punch. And uh, a politician, even said a politician who wasn't made fun of in punch hadn't arrived. And... This punch, of course, was not just, uh, was, I would say habitually, it was actually sporadically, is perhaps the word, uh, a comic strip purveyor, which came in, I'm tempted to say, by stealth. And the whole story of how the comic strips got into punch, when punch really wasn't that interested in comic strips, came back to haunt me a little when I said in an earlier volume, which went sort of, Slightly over this whole era, because in, uh, I did another book which covered the whole of European comic strip, you know, six different countries. Must have been crazy then. Um, <laughs> running from, uh, essentially from Tupfer, actually, yeah, I could say from Goya, but uh, from Tupfer through to the end of the, uh, 1896, which is when uh, the so called American comic strip is born or the American comic strip is so-called born with the yellow kid. Now, so the question I'm asking is, and the question that Punch asked itself, uh, uh, why are we successful? You know, these other newspapers were not. These other Tupney things were not. Well, the answer is, perhaps, um, the taste of the English who were not looking for comic strips in particular. They were looking for, you know, jokes and uh, cartoons about the uh, about their government, essentially, and about certain social crazes, you know, like beards and whatnot, um, that they... Um, mm-hmm. They took to the cheaper magazines... Not just because they were cheaper, but because they 
uh, were uh, less imp- they, they were more impudent than punch. I mean, and the reason the upper classes didn't want to buy punch sometimes was was to begin with, certainly, it was criticism of the royal family, which you didn't do at first until the royal family established themselves. Um, but uh, they had a lot of hard time to begin with. And Punch, uh, the very beginning, was a radical magazine, uh, which did not, obviously did not appeal to the upper classes who were for happy the way things were, more or less. No, there were abuses, of course, but more or less, where, you know, England was top dog and that sort of thing. Um, and for a few years ran radical cartoons, you know, uh, hostile to the gamekeeper, for instance, uh, or hostile to the aristocrat who was punishing uh, the, anyone who dared to hunt his, his deer or his hare on uh, his land. Um, so there's that diff- there's a class difference between Punch and all the other magazines is very, very marked. But that still doesn't explain to me why the cheaper magazine, which was fun in its own way, um, failed. It, could it be that they hadn't – the five great artists that I make much of, and I put at the beginning, you know, saying these are the stars of this book, which are – Cruikshank, who's actually not in Punch at all, but he sort of belongs in there. But there is, um, oh gosh, what? Leach, Tenniel, Keane, Du Maurier, and uh, Doyle. Anyway, those are the major artists, all of whom were known in the outside world, in the, in the world outside of Punch. Mm-hmm. Although they were much cherished for their cartoons in Punch, and not apparently noticed even for their comic strips, which were relatively few. You know, there's no, there's no Mr. Wilderspin, for instance, which goes on for 23 pages and is the only real candidate for the title graphic novel in that whole period. I think uh, the, candidate, the other candidate would be uh, Richard Doyle, who after he quarreled with Punch which is very unfortunate for Punch because he's a very, very funny and brilliant artist. You know, the Bayeux Tapestry was only part of it. Um, but he left Punch when Punch began attacking the uh, imposition of a Catholic hierarchy in Britain, where the Catholics were discriminated against. Mm-hmm. And uh, they made rude cartoons about the papacy, about the cardinals that had been foisted on Britain, that had never had any cardinals to deal with. And he quit in a huff, which was a great shame for Punch because he was a wonderful artist and very much regretted by one of the Punch contributors, which was Thackeray, thought it was a great mistake. Now, the whole anti-Catholic crusade was a mistake, and that was Thackeray. But anyway, and Thackeray was their star writer, who incidentally, uh, who's curiously, who's caught, I, I think it's probably, now you make me think, <laughs> it's probably he never offered his drawings to Punch. He thought Punch's artists were just a little bit better than he was who was not a mean caricaturist, and he illustrated five of his own novels, did Thackeray. So there's this, you know, come back to the original question. I think the, um, the, 
money, the, the, the broader classes who appreciated good art for its own sake, of you know Keenan, Tenniel, and company, um, just didn't see this um, uh, these um, sort of interlopers um, who, uh, like Watts Phillips and uh, several other named figures, who at the end of the period actually descend into um, monosyllabic, into uh, initials. Like they don't think they're worth. This is sort of. I, I find this very curious. There's an artist called Fid at the end of my period, which I actually cheat on. Because <laughs> he goes into. His best work is done in 1871, and I'm supposed to end December the 30th, 30th and December 1870, right? And here they are, early in 1871, doing very funny stuff in a new style which will be the style of the future. In some ways more Tupferian because more fantastic and less dependent on anatomical knowledge, which all the, you know, the great artists, the, the, the quintet of really good artists for, um, for Punch were all academically trained and grew beautifully, you know, and were admired for, the, the, they were collected, you know, for the, I'm, some of them, I'm sure the, there's certainly people collecting the cartoons, which um, might, might not have been their best work, and uh, putting them in a scrapbook or something like that. But anyway, the, the the really good artists stuck with Punch and never went anywhere else, except well, there's one exception, but it's <laughs> too long to too long to recount that. And the fact is that the. Um, at the end of the period uh, where the um, hey, the Penny and Tupney Weekly was launched, began to carry more and more comic strips of, I think, rather inferior quality and progressively inferior, inferior. and you could see the... Um, Recognition by Harmsworth Press, but Northcliffe, Lord Northcliffe, was it? Started the first penny newspaper. It may even have been a halfpenny newspaper. You know, it had nothing in it but sort of silly gossip. But it put in, began to put in drawings, and these were attractive to a semi-literate group who had just benefited from the Education Acts of 1870 and onwards and were able to read the captions, which you know, many of the drawings for a comic strip, you generally have to be able to read the caption. And this is a new clientele, which may not have gone to punch at all, and they, but they found their home in Hapney, a bit later Hapney, but in Penny magazines, which were within their grasp financially, and within also their intellectual grasp, I could say, because they tended to be uh, farcical and silly and in some ways nonsensical and, um, what's the word? Um, the word for um, when something has no significance. Um, Irrelevant. Yeah. Um, when you couldn't see the significance, the, the moral point, it didn't have to have a moral point. And the master of this is a mistress, so to speak, 
um, that is to say, the woman, Marie Duval, who shows up at the end of my book, it's like a painful sejura for me because she is, we're beginning to think, you know, we uh, study these things in England, that Marie Duval was a great artist. She was the first uh, European, the first caricaturist in Europe, female. And the first female to make a living out of caricature, and in the creation of the first enduring character in caricature, who was a ne'er do well, uh, sort of uh, swindler called uh, Ali Sloper, who shows up at the very end as a reporter for the Franco Prussian War. And I don't know whether we have enough time left to look into the Franco-Prussian War. Do you have other questions first, or whether I should think of something very important that I wanted to say and I forgot? I, I feel like we, 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 we covered the, 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 the book quite well, uh, and, and I hope that a lot of people can appreciate the, uh, the, the, the breadth and depth of, of knowledge that went into it and, and the uh, artistry that's represented, uh, you know, in the cartoons that you selected. I, I was going to ask: uh, Are you uh, working on? Uh, uh, are you uh, are you working on anything new? No. Ah. No, I have. Um, I've laid aside my mantle. Um, <laughs> oh, standing ground, aren't I? Um, I'm. I, I have a large. I have archives up the gazoo. Um, and the one, the, the Tripler archive is the most important in many ways because it, uh, it is constituted by a large number of first editions that appear in four figures on the internet on, on, on aid books, you know, has a, a $20,000 you can get a first Tripler comic strip book. 20000 It's crazy. <laughs> uh, and how, how can this man still be unknown if he's still so valuable? <laughs> Uh, so I'm not going back into Tupfer. Uh I've just been sent two books which I'm, I'm tempted to review but I don't want to first of all I have difficulty typing these things on my new computer but it is a, um, a book on um, Ross who was the husband of Duval and I think she outshone him and does the the bulk of the really good uh, uh, Ali Sloper stories. And then her husband, Ross, has his own book. You know. But these all belong into the last third of the century. And that's when um, I, I won't say I'm not interested anymore, but I recognize, as I say in a rather unhappy, lugubrious sort of epitaph, that... Um, after 1870, after the uh, climax, if you like, of the Franco-Prussian War, uh, which in its way is obviously a political climax, but anyway, that the comic strip um, comes into life in the cheap, cheap papers, the halfpenny and the penny papers, but at this lower and I can say childish level, it is a child can afford a halfpenny from its pocket money, you know, uh, or a penny. And the children uh, and adolescents, uh, well, children in a broader sense, were the customers. And the, the content of the 
of is shown in the um, character of the later magazines, which are not of a, well, yes, I can say they're not of the caliber. They're, they're very different. They're not serious, for one thing. They're not political anymore, as so many, as you've noted, or you've read enough of the book to see just how I fasten on political issues and gnaw and chew on them. Um, this doesn't happen anymore. It's trivia. And the, oh, the word I was looking for was the inconsequential, which Mary Duval herself whom we now consider, I mean, she has had two monographs. Um, she's an important figure. And her kind of inconsequentiality is regarded as modernist. I think in some ways it's a failure of her own imagination or her sense that uh, after Tupfer has uh, somehow... Uh, done all that can be said in the world, in, in 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 the realm of um, fantasy of I have to put it this way of sort of adult fantasy because Tepfer satire is uh, very adult in the sense that he's making fun of schoolmasters um, he's making fun of astronomers he's making look fun of um, what are the people who of Gaul and the um, the um, the scientists who went around um, reading characters from Skull? What's it? What's that called? Phrenologists. Uh, phrenologists. Thank you. <laughs> and he. So and these are very important topics. These are important phenomena which are happening. And Tupfer takes them on in the wildest way. Uh, so he manages to be very, very funny and also very scathing. And there's no doubt about he reached his... The schoolmasters in Geneva were rather worried about what he was saying about that, that, that he, was, uh, he was making fun of their um, educational nostrums, uh, educational innovations, when it was a an era of great uh, innovation, you know, Froebel, for instance, started there. And uh, Tupfer saw that this was all rather hokey and said so. And the um, <laughs> local schoolmaster said, this Tupfer is really too much, you know. He's making fun of serious things. And he's making things that Geneva is famous for, like its education. Yeah, so... Well, I, you you definitely uh, if, if, given this is your last book, you're definitely going on a high note. It's it's a it's a gorgeously uh, illustrated book, one that that I think really demonstrates a lot of the uh, points that you uh, make about the artist and and, and the, uh, art, uh, the 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 comic artwork at the time. Yes, what a shame I didn't get to talk. And I really ended. I wanted to talk about Taniel and elephants. Well, this is, Invite this, me on again, and I'll tell you why uh, Tenniel was so obsessed with elephants, uh, <laughs> elephant hunting, and that whole story of how to here, how you you'll have to cut me off brutally. <laughs> Tenniel plays off the the British incompetence in India by showing how incompetent they are, even to ride an elephant or even to use an elephant to chase a tiger that that is prized, uh, uh, one one of the great. 
prizes of the of the, of the hunt. So that Tenniel, and I just leave you on this. Tenniel did only one comic strip, and it is glorious. You know, the various beasts of the hunt are shown humiliating the Englishman who tries to hunt them, who isn't really a, should be a military figure, but he isn't. He's a civilian. And uh, he does this because at the time, in the 1850s, there was real concern about the way the British were behaving in India, which uh, erupted in uh, 1857, a few years later, in the uh, Sepoy Rebellion, in the uh, so-called Indian mutiny. And that is a big issue, not just for English history at that time, but whenever we're concerned with colonial history and the uh, terrible injuries that we have inflicted on native peoples. Well, I, and that is shown indirectly in a comic way by uh, the uh, by Tenniel, in the only comic strip he ever did. Well, well, okay, I, enough. I, I was going to say, I was going to say, r- rather have you back on. I, I would just encourage uh, listeners to to uh, pick up a copy and read the book for themselves. <laughs> well, yes, yes, that, yes, absolutely, <laughs> yes. Uh, David Kunzel, uh, thank you. For okay, re- you know, uh, yes. The funny thing, some of my books, I've, I've been much, <laughs> it's crazy. I, I've had letters from fans occasionally saying, I got your letter, your book from, um, you know, the local public library. But unfortunately, a whole lot of pages were torn out of it. <laughs> and I took that as flattering. <laughs> well, hopefully, hopefully people will, will, will buy this book instead of, of tearing out part, uh, you know, copies of, of pages for themselves. Uh, David Kunzel. Yes, watch the page. Yes, yes. <laughs> this is a time when, you know, maybe people are too poor to buy the book and they just wanted certain pages. Or, you know, it's, it's, really, it's really strange. Yes. Well, so the wealth of, which is an irony because tips are him. Enough said. Okay. Well, thank you for inviting me on. Well, thank you for, for and, coming uh, on our show. Try, our, me, try me again in a year's time. <laughs> well, well, thank you very much. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you. Okay. Bye bye.